0: A couple years ago, we did a Seder dinner together, um, which is a kind of reconstruction of the Passover feast with some of the Jewish traditions, just to kind of walk through that. And one of my favorite things that has stuck with me uh, is their greeting or their farewell at the end. Um, The the custom is to say, next year in the new Jerusalem. How cool is that? And I can't hardly take communion anymore without thinking, maybe. Maybe. Next next week uh, we celebrate communion uh, in the New Jerusalem. How great will that be? Well, this week uh, family worship Sunday we got the kids in with us. Where are my kids at? Put your hands up. Where are you guys? Some of them back. I'm not a ton of kids this morning, um, but uh, you guys are in with us on purpose. We love you. We're glad you're here. It is not by accident that you're with us uh, every week through uh, the singing time. And uh, we we want you here. We want you to be able to engage. Um, I want to give you a hint. We want you to watch your parents. We want you to see your mom and dad worshiping God and and to see their love for God come out. And we want you to join. We want you to, to, to see his glory in a way that makes you sing, too. And it's not by accident that once a month we have you guys in here with us for the whole service, the whole long sermon, um, because it's good to be together. Um, We love your children's ministry teachers. They do a fantastic job of teaching you guys. um, But it's good for us to be together under God's word. Again, you get to see mom and dad learning from God's word and growing and studying. um, and, and, And you get to hear God's word. And, and I get and I it. It's hard in here. It's harder in here than it is for you downstairs. Um, but it's good for you to learn to do hard things, and especially this thing. It's good for you to learn how to listen to a sermon and how to take some notes. That's why I got you that, uh, that fill-in so that you can be paying attention, filling in notes. Uh, and, and just to make sure that's fun for you, um, somebody help me out what I got afterwards if you fill it out. Candy, I got nice little chocolate bars. Um, so I want to see you fill that out. And if you're if you're too little and filling out words is tough, draw me a picture. Draw me a picture from the sermon, and uh, I want to see that after the service. And I will have candy for you because um, this is for you. Because we want you here, and God wants you to be learning and growing in His Word. So take it as a challenge. Um, it's going to be hard, um, but pay attention. Try to understand. So let me uh, let me pray for you. And for all of us, as we we move into God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and trustworthy, that we can plant both feet on it solidly with no doubt. Thank you that it's clear and that it calls us to Christ, even the youngest among us, to come and even... Uh, the most mature among us, to come as children, humbly and simply to your word. Lord, would you teach us this morning? Help us to understand, help us to grow in you, God, that we would hear your word this morning, that we would accept it, uh, receive it in meekness, and that we would be doers of the word, that we would be changed and transformed uh, to the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, parents, I have, uh, I have something for you to, um, a tip, just a, a trick. Josh mentioned this to me the other day. Uh, I'm going to be throwing a lot of scripture at you this morning, um, and uh, because of the narrow time we have between when the United Church leaves and we have to get everything set up and move in, um, there's not a ton of time to get everything inputted into the computer to have up on the screen. They do a great job. I hope they'll get the majority of what I've got up there this week, um, but especially the kids fill in. Um, I know some of you have said, I have a hard time, getting the scriptures down, and I want to go back and look at those later, and I, and I can't get them all written down, here's the, here's the simple trick that will change your life. I could do an infomercial here. Um, do the numbers first. You'll know, you won't forget the book. Um, so the, the reference is John fourteen twenty three. Write down fourteen twenty three, and then go back and put in John, because you'll remember that part. Um, might help you, helps me uh, for what it's worth, um, but uh, let's, uh, let's get into God's word. Kids, I need you to imagine with me, you're sitting at the kitchen table and supper is finished, and your mom who loves you very much brings out a large pail of ice cream and all of the toppings you could ever want. Who likes ice cream? Anybody? Liars, I see a bunch with your hands down. Um, (laughs) All right, what are the best ice cream toppings? Help me out, what are you putting on your son? What? Hot fudge, caramel, bananas, cherries, come on, melted peanut butter, somebody's bringing their egg in. all right, all right, I don't have to think about that one, this is, this is my perfect bowl of ice cream, ready for it, nice high quality vanilla ice cream, sweetened coconut flakes, chocolate chips, and then maple syrup, Oh, perfect, that's, that's it. it. But not you guys. You guys want everything, right? Load it up. It's this massive bowl. It's huge, and it's overflowing with sprinkles and chocolate syrup and caramel syrup and strawberry syrup and chocolate chips. And when you devour this big, beautiful bowl of ice cream, and your mom looks at you, and she laughs, and she says, honey, go look in the mirror. What does that mean? Why? Help me out. Might need to take a shower. Yeah, you're onto something. Why? Because you've got ice cream on your face, right? Go look in the mirror. It means you've got ice cream on your face. Now, imagine that you listened to your mom, and you went to the bathroom, and you looked in the mirror, and you went, wow, look at this on my nose and in my hair and dripping off my chin. Uh, and then uh, you walked away, and you went to help out, you know, clean up supper or give your mom a big hug. What's your mom going to say? Get back in there, right? Right? What did did she she want want you to do? Wash your your face, face, right? Right? That's That's why why she she told you to go look in the mirror. She didn't didn't say wash your face. She just said said go look in the mirror, but we kind of knew what she meant, right? Most of you probably know where this is going. It's one of the best-known passages in the book of James that we come to this morning. Um, James says that that's the way some people treat God's word. Like this messy-faced kid who goes and looks in the mirror and then just walks out of the bathroom again without doing anything about it. We look at God's word, and and we don't do anything with what we see there. So two weeks ago, we're looking at verses 19 to 21 and, and the importance of hearing God's word, how we need to remove some of these simple barriers in our heart. We need to be slow to speak and slow to become angry, quick to listen, right? We need to be... Receiving the word with meekness, with humility. Hear the word, James says. Verses 22 to 25 then, we're going to look at this morning. Um, he takes us to the next logical step. Hear the word. You need, to, you need to not only hear the word though, but you need to do the word. That's the first blank on the top of your fill in. Do the word. right? Don't just hear it. Do something about it. Don't just look in the mirror. Wash your face. Seeing yourself in the mirror is never the end goal, right? The end goal is to get the ice cream off. And, and so hearing God's word, just taking it in, is not the end goal. The end goal is that, that it would transform the way that we live. So turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1 if you haven't already. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, there's one in the pew there somewhere near you. We want you to have God's word Open on your lap. I have nothing of value for you. Um, this is all I have is God's word. And uh, we come together to sit under God's word. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, take this one with you. We just ordered a whole bunch of new ones. We're excited to do that. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. Uh, but let's, uh, let's look together. James chapter 1. We'll start reading at verse 22. Let's just stop at these first words, this first basic command here. Be doers of the word. This is a call to action, to movement. Um, Don't just hear the word, do something about it. And and, and James here is pointing to um, the proof of obedience. That's point one, the proof of obedience. James has been laying out for us, as we've kind of walked through this book, we've seen uh, he's, he's laying out these tests of authentic faith. What does true, genuine, saving faith look like? In and, and verses 2 to 18, uh, we're all about... Testing faith by trials. When hardship comes, when suffering and and temptation comes, true faith, genuine faith, saving faith, actually grows under trial. It produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness moves in toward maturity and completeness and and holiness. This next section, verses 19 through 27, um, talks about the test of how true faith responds to the word. And so this is part of that test of authenticity. He's saying, this is what true faith looks like. This is what genuine belief is. And, and this is so important for you kids who have grown up in the church. And, and I think for many of us who have just kind of been in church for a long time. At some point, you're going to have to pause and ask the question, do I just do this because it's what I do? Um, or, or do I have genuine faith? Is this my faith? Do I actually believe? um, Do I have faith in such a way that I can be confident that I'm saved? Obedience to God's word is evidence of an authentic faith. Obedience to God's word is evidence of an authentic faith. Now, this is where James often gets misunderstood and and taken uh, wrong. And and people will say that James... um, contradicts Paul and Paul talks all about grace and James talks about works and, and they're right about that but that doesn't mean that James and Paul disagree and uh, this is so central to understanding the book of James and as we move forward from here we're going to be relying on this so um, we're just going to camp here for a little bit and unpack this and the first thing we have to do is understand scripture right This book is fundamentally different from any other written work, right? We need to get that. So um, really simple question, easy question. Maybe one of the Barnsdale kids can answer me. I didn't even hear ice cream toppings from you guys. Who wrote the book of James? Easy answer. (laughs) James! Let's get a little trickier. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Who? Paul. Now, if I was to change the question and tell you that there was one author that wrote both of those books, who would that be? God. Yeah, that's why we call it God's Word, because God wrote the Bible. So how do we know that Paul and James don't disagree? Because God wrote both books. Because God used James to write the book of James and say exactly what he intended, and God used Paul to write the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians and to say exactly what he meant to say, and God doesn't contradict himself. God is not like us who changes his mind or maybe accidentally says one thing one day and another thing the other day. Um, No, God is absolutely consistent. And so they don't disagree because God doesn't disagree with himself. And so often people use the Bible this way. And two people disagree and one person will say, hey, the Bible says A... And the other person will say, no, 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 the Bible says B, and they'll start stacking up verses against each other uh, as if whoever can get the more verses wins, and it doesn't work that way. Or um, we have this idea that maybe we can stack up all these verses, and and the truth is like some kind of compromise between the two. It's not that either. The truth is in both. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and is trustworthy and true. And so the job is to properly understand all of the verses, submit to all of the verses, and then work to figure out how they fit together. And so it turns out that looking at James and Paul is a great kind of case study, a great place to kind of work this out. What does that look like? Um, Because at first glance, they seem to contradict. And as we dig in deeper, they totally agree. And so uh, here's the question between James and Paul. Are good works, so is our obedience a necessary part of salvation? Are good works a necessary part of salvation? That's a big question. Think about that for a minute. How would you answer that? Is obedience a necessary part of your salvation? I'm going I'm to guess that most of us would at very least be most comfortable answering that with a nice clear no. And we answer that way because of our our roots in the Reformation, right? That's where we come from. That is huge. That is why we are not Catholics, and that's a big deal. Because we understand the five solas, right? And the first three, lay that out. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not giving up on that. That's where we... And our, our history has come from understanding our works do nothing to accomplish our salvation. We're not, we're not saved because of the things that we do. It's not about what we can do, but what Christ has done. And we go to Paul to back that up, and we should. Paul says, salvation does not depend on faith. or Sorry, works. Woo. You guys like, have you read Paul? Uh, Paul says, salvation does not depend on faith our works all of us and we grew up in a in a protestant church um there's a good chance you memorized ephesians 2 8 and 9 early on right by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of god not a result of works so that no one can boast grace through faith no works Galatians 2.16, Paul doubles down on this even clearer. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, not saved by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Listen to this. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Clear as day. Faith and works, they're like opposites. You can't have both. We're saved by faith and not by works of the law. Paul says you're a sinner. You've rebelled against God. You've have, you have broken his law. You're guilty before him. You deserve judgment in hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right? There is no ritual you can perform. There is no good deed that you could ever do or stack up enough good deeds to try to outweigh your bad deeds. It's not going to work here. It's beyond us. Salvation is in Christ. He accomplishes it. We're saved by by faith in him, by by actually giving up on our works and saying, no, I can't do it. I need Jesus. I need a Savior. It's by faith in what he has accomplished. It's the death of Jesus on my behalf. So Paul says, again, "My, my salvation does not depend on works. And then enters James, that rascal, and he upsets the apple cart. He comes in talking about works. And he says obedience is absolutely necessary part of salvation. James says, don't be just a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Act on it. And in case that's not clear enough, we'll see this again we get down to chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith, But does not have works, can such a faith save him? And his resounding answer is no. So what's going on? James says there is no salvation without works. Works are a necessary part of salvation. So who's right? Well, they both are. And we have to just understand them properly. And actually, they don't contradict each other at all. We'll get more into this again as we come into chapter 2. But the difference is this. Paul says salvation does not depend on works. Salvation doesn't grow out from works. Works are not the root of the tree of salvation. James says true salvation produces works. True salvation brings about change. So we're looking at this tree. Faith is the root, faith and grace and Christ. That's the root of our salvation and the fruit of it is works, is obedience. Now, forgive me if we circle this for a little bit because I, I want to be simple and clear, um, but, but precise and, and accurate. And, and so Paul is saying, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and, and there's nothing you could do to earn your salvation. And James is saying, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but that faith in God the true faith that actually saves, it's the kind of faith that produces fruit. It's the kind of faith that has evidence to it. It has an effect. It changes you. And so think about James this way. Um, if you were to walk into a clinic this afternoon and say, um, I, I think I have COVID-19. Uh, I think alarms would go off and like a cone would drop over you. And, um, but you know, once that was all done, um, they might ask you some questions like, do you have a cough? Do you have a fever? Do you have fatigue? Right? They're asking you um, if you have the symptoms of COVID-19. Now, does the cough give you COVID-19? Does the fever cause the disease? No. No, there's symptoms of it. There are outworkings of the disease. And so James is asking, do you have the symptoms of salvation? And salvation doesn't have any asymptomatic cases. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. And it turns out Paul does not disagree with this at all. We know of Ephesians 8 and 9, by like, grace and saved through faith and that not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But does anyone know verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace, yes, but we're saved to works. We're saved to good deeds, obedience. And the evidence that that grace has truly done its work in our hearts has actually transformed our, uh, transformed us, it is a transformed life. It's, it's increasing obedience to the word of God. So you, you cannot say, I am a Christian with, with any level of confidence, if that statement isn't backed up by your life, isn't proven in your obedience, I want us to to stick here for a minute because I think this is a doctrine that we're not that accustomed to hearing. And and, and so I want to just show you this from a few different parts of Scripture. This is where that note-taking tip is going to come in handy. Um, Verses, then book. Uh, Jesus talked about this a bunch. Jesus is so clear on this. John 14, 23, 24. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's, that's a picture of salvation. We will be dwelling with him. We will be with him. Who? The one who loves me. And we know that he loves me because he keeps my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. John 15, 14, just very simply, Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command. Matthew 7, 21. This one's a stinger. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you were careless with that, you could say Jesus is talking about work salvation. He's not. He's talking about fruit. We know that because because the Holy Spirit wrote John and the Holy Spirit wrote Romans, and we we can put these together. Jesus says works are a necessary part of salvation. Not earning it, but proof of it. It's possible, Jesus says, to cry out, Lord, Lord. To call Jesus Lord and Master and to call on him for salvation with your mouth in such a way that it is hollow and insincere and and does not save you. And we all get that, right? Like that's why, it's one of the key differences between Christianity and Islam Um, Um, I can't can't put you you in a headlock headlock and make make you a a Christian. Christian? Like, Like, believe, do do it. it. Say, Jesus is Lord. I mean, this would just be great if I could just just pull pull out, out, you know, know, 20 20 bucks at the coffee shop and say to someone, hey, say the the words, words, Jesus Jesus is Lord. Lord. Jesus is Lord. Ha, you're You're saved. saved. He doesn't even know it, but he's going to heaven because he said the words, right? He said, Lord, Lord. So there's obviously this scale of insincerity on one hand and saving faith on the other. What where, where is the line? Where is salvation found? Jesus says, in those who call on me in such a way that it produces obedience. True faith, saving faith, Jesus says, is not seen in what someone says with their mouth, but in what they do with their lives. That's where it shows up. The book of 1 John is basically all about this. 1 John 1, to 6-7. If we say we have fellowship with him, so I claim to be a Christian, we say we have fellowship with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So so there are people who who claim to be followers of God, have fellowship with God, and they're liars. They walk in darkness. They continue walking away from God. 1 John 2, 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him. There's our question. How do you know if you've come to know God? By this, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, it has its proper effect. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. It's so clear. 1 John 3.10. Last one. This is, by this it is evident who are the children of God. How do we know? By this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I get it. That That makes makes us a little uncomfortable. You feel like, like, have we abandoned salvation salvation by faith faith? here? No, not not at all. We're talking about salvation by faith that produces works, that produces an effect, that brings about a change. Martin Luther um, said it this way, idle faith is not justifying faith. Idle faith is not a justifying faith. Faith must, of course, be sincere. It must be a faith that performs good works through love. If faith lacks love, it's not true faith. It's not as though our works save us, but they give evidence of a, of a true saving faith. John Calvin summarized it very eloquently. Um, he said, it is therefore faith alone which justifies. Yet the faith which justifies is never alone. Did you get that? We're saved by faith alone, but the the faith that saves is never alone. It's accompanied by transformation, by obedience. That's the proof. So a follower of Jesus, shocker, actually follows Jesus. A child of God has some family resemblance to his father. So here's the question. Not just do you call yourself a Christian, Do do you say the words, Lord, Lord, or have you prayed a prayer at one time, but rather, do you actually trust him? Do you actually believe him in such a way that it produces obedience in you? Be doers of the word. And I want you to notice here, um, the way James says this, um, James is not talking so much about what you do, actually, but who you are. It's not so much about what you do, but who you are. Look at the words. Be doers of the word. That's the the kind of person you are. The kind of person who is a doer of the word, right? It's it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, I I did a work one time. I had that one day when I did a righteous thing. No. And we're saying, are you the kind of person who lives out God's word? It's like the difference between someone who, uh, you know, A homeowner who gets a hole in the drywall and he patches it off. Look at I did that. I did a a home reno thing that one time Um, compared to the guy who is a professional day in, day out house builder, right? One, One did a reno thing one time. The other is consistently building houses. That's what he does, right? It's the difference between the guy that says, I have a first aid certificate. I took the course, check. I know how to save a life. Uh, and the paramedic who is out there with his hands in blood day in and day out saving lives. It's not about um, this just kind of outward action, but an inward uh, identity. That's who I am is is a doer of God's word. Now, if you hear that, and you look at your life and you think, that's not really me. Or at least it's not obviously me. Or maybe, boy, it's it's been a while. It's been a rough couple of months or maybe years. Not a lot of obedience lately. And you begin to wonder. Maybe you even doubt your own salvation. Is this real? I want to encourage you. That's a question some of us need to ask. It's not an easy question to stare that in the face. But take heart. Take heart. If your life is not characterized by Christ's ongoing work in you and that bothers you, that's grace. That's grace. That is the Holy Spirit convicting you. And it's, it's the Lord saying, hey, wake up. Let's go. Get out of bed. Let's get to work. What are you going to do about it? Will you hear the word and, 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 and repent? Repent? of sin, take up that call to to seeking after Christ, running hard after Him, growing in in obedience and holiness, producing this evidence of faith, this, this work of the Spirit evident in you? One month, three months, a year down the road, you're going to be able to look back and say, you know what, it wasn't clear on that day, but it's clear on this day. Praise God, I can look now and see evidence of Christ's work and sanctification. I'm not the man today that I was back then. Or will you slough it off? Will you fight it? Will you hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit now and by tonight go back to sitting comfortably in sin, being spiritually lazy and passive toward God, neither actively hearing nor doing God's word? And a year from now, be more sunk and buried in sin than you are today. And if that's you, You should lack confidence in your salvation. You're right to ask those questions, to even doubt and and fear. And I pray that that fear would lead you to desperately seeking the Lord, would lead you to true living faith and and repentance and the kind of faith that saves. That fear can be a very healthy thing. So that's point one is this proof of obedience. Be a doer of the word. Live in it. The second thing that we see here is the danger on the other side, the peril of apathy. We'll move a little quicker from here, don't worry. The peril of apathy. Um, those are two words that are really unhelpful on the kids fill in. Um, what does peril mean? One of the older kids help me out. What is peril? Disaster, danger, right? It's a trap. It's not safe. The peril. What's apathy? Here, here's apathy. When you're playing on your screen and mom says, okay, screen time's over, and you go, uh-huh, and you keep on playing, right? It's hearing and not doing. It's laziness. It's lack of action. So the peril of apathy, the danger of not doing anything, and here's the deal. This is, this is so dangerous, James says that we're to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's the trap. The trap is we lie to ourselves and we believe it. We are so easily self deceived. That's why I say if you take a look at your life and you don't see Christ's ongoing work in you and that bothers you, that's grace. That's That's a a gift gift, because that is the the Holy Spirit in you overcoming your self-deception and showing you something you would not have seen on your own. It's a gift. I'll tell you this from experience. There are so many people who should doubt their salvation, whose lives show very little, if any, at all work of the Spirit. They, They do not appear to be actually following Christ. And they are so confident, even arrogant in their salvation. Why? They're self-deceived. Just like James warns. Let me read uh, verses 23 and and 24 for us. James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. He looks in the mirror. He even looks looks intently. intently. He looks diligently, carefully. And then he forgets what he saw. He walks away. It's foolish. It's absurd. He's totally missed the entire point of the mirror. It's ridiculous to think that this guy has gone out of the bathroom and out into the world with his face dripping with ice cream. and, and, And he sees no problem with this. He looked at himself in the mirror. He saw it. And then walked away, and and he forgets. He tells himself everything's fine, and he believes his own lie. And so he's comfortable. He's even confident. People are looking at him weird, and he's like, what is your problem? As the ice cream runs down his cheeks. It's that kind of ridiculous picture that James hopes will kind of catch our attention. That's the peril here. That's the danger here, that, that we might be hearers of the word. Where we are right now, hearing the word. We might be regular church attenders, regular Bible readers, listen to Christian sermons and read Christian books and, and, and engage in Christian conversations, but all of it would just stay at surface level. And we would be content to hear the word and then say, But I'm doing fine, I'm okay. Not moving from hearing to, to doing. This is so deceptive. This is so dangerous. I see this in my own life. I am so prone to this in my sinfulness. I will listen to a good sermon and here's the pastor's pitfall. I'll critique the sermon. Good exegesis there. Oh, well done. Good handling of the text. Yep, yeah, nice illustration. Brought at home. Application. Good job. Well, good sermon. Just hold it out there. Critique it. Well, read the Bible and feel pretty good about it because I did it, right? Check. I read my chapters for today. I got it in. Yay, me. And yet, if you were to ask me later in the day, how did your reading this morning change you? How were you challenged by God this morning? What, what difference has it made in your life? Wow. I forgot about that part, right? I wasn't looking for that. I was just checking off my box. The goal of God's word in the believer is transformation. The goal is transformation. That it would change us. We can't lose sight of that. We should always seek to walk away from an encounter with God's word. Asking ourselves, how now shall we live? What do I do now? How does this change what I believe, the way I think, the way I act, the way I speak? What does this call me and how do I be a a doer of the word? Sin is so deceptive. Don't be content to just hear. I think we even are in danger of becoming arrogant because we are hearers and being even more insulated from the call to be a doer. Produce the the proof of obedience and, and escape the peril of apathy. And then finally, James holds out for us the promise of obedience. This is so beautiful. It's the third point here the promise of obedience. Um, this is the why. This is the motivation that ought to, to drive us and fill us. Um, this, is, this is the right understanding of God's word that, that ought to be um, our motivation. Um, looking at verse 25, I'm sorry, I need to grab a drink of water. James says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Notice James's language shifted there. It's odd. He's been talking about the word, right? Verse eighteen, he started saying that was the by the word of truth that we were brought forth. We were given spiritual life, new birth by the word of truth. So that's it's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, he says that it's the, it's the word implanted in you that's able to save you. He started this passage, verse 22, calling us to be doers of the word, but in verse 25, the language switches. He uses all these same, same words of, uh, of being doers of the word, but instead here he says there would be doers of the law. And he calls it the perfect law. The law of liberty. How can he talk that way? What does that mean? Again, um, isn't he totally at loggerheads with Paul? I mean, Paul talks about the law as our condemnation. It's the law that kills. The law brings death. The law brings judgment upon us. James loves the law of God. He loves it. And again, he doesn't disagree with Paul. They're they're looking at it from different angles. Outside of Christ, without faith in Jesus, the the law condemns us for our guilt and sin. It, It leaves us silent and guilty before God. It shuts us up. No one has kept God's law. No one is righteous the way God defines it. And so through the law comes judgment. Through the law comes our death penalty. But. Jesus lived the perfect life. He completely fulfilled the law of God. He died on the cross paying the penalty of the wrath of God that we deserve, that the law demands, so that those who trust in him, though we were lawbreakers, can now be treated as law keepers, can be fully forgiven. The weight of the guilt of the law is lifted. Jesus saves us from the curse of the law. Gave us new life, so that now we can live in the blessing of God's law. That's what James is talking about. In Christ, the law of God becomes a very different thing. Once that curse of guilt is taken away, there's something new here. Ezekiel 36, 26, uh, God talks about it this way. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you, listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's, there's that fruit of obedience. God will do it. God will cause you to walk in my statutes, be careful to obey my rules, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's that's language of blessing. I will have fellowship with you. You'll have my my blessing poured out on you as you walk in my law. You see, this this new heart, this new heart of salvation um, will be a heart of obedience, a heart that loves to do the will of God. And in that, we have this restored relationship with God. This is how David can can write something like Psalm 19. I know David came before Jesus, but David understood guilt of sin and repentance and atonement. Listen now, he talks about the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony, that's law again, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, there it is again, of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David loves the law of God. He sees it as as life and, and joy and blessing. It's better than all the gold in the world. Before Christ, as law breakers were slaves to sin, and sin brings death. But in Christ, In Christ, we're free from sin and death. And there's this beautiful paradox. In Christ, we are free from sin and we are free to be slaves to God. We're free to be slaves to God. And where slavery to sin brought chaos and pain and suffering and and ultimately death and hell. Slavery to God brings life and joy and peace and eternity. That's that's how we ought to see the law of God. It's the law of liberty, James says. Look at that just kind of internal contrast there. It's the law that gives me freedom. Following God's rules is where true freedom is found. That's what we were created to be, where we were created to live. Right? It's like the the fire does best in the fireplace. The fish does well in the fish tank. In the law of God, we have life and freedom. The one who looks on God's perfect and good law, not just hearing, but persevering, working at it, persevering, being a doer of the law, he'll be blessed in his doing. I, I love the simplicity of the old hymn, uh, sing this to my kids uh, as I put them to sleep regularly. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's that simple. What a beautiful promise. That sinful old self thinks, boy, if I could just throw off the law of God, if I could get rid of the law of God, then I could just run into sin and then I'd be happy. Then I'd have everything I need. And of course, it's a lie. It's death down that road. But the heart made new in Christ, the heart that is given new life, um, sees through the eyes of faith, understands God, trusts him, loves him, delights to run hard after obedience. They say, if I could just throw off this, this tyranny of sin, I could be free to obey God. Delights in it, not begrudgingly, but out of this hopeful expectation of joy. That's why he's a doer of the word. That's why he dares not look into the law of God and walk away forgetting what he saw, because he believes there's blessing there. He believes God. He has faith. He believes that God is who he says he is and does what he says he does. So in his heart, it's his desire and joy to obey. Does he do it perfectly? Oh, by no means. Oh, no, he he battles with temptation and the lies of this world. He deceives himself and believes it and falls flat on his face into sin. Time and time again, he's dogged by these old habits that keep coming back. He sins in ways that he doesn't yet understand to be sinful. But here's the truth. The true believer sins as much as he wants. Think about it. In fact, the true believer sins far more than he wants, right? Because his heart is after God. Because sin is not where his heart is. Because though he battles and fights and falters and fails, the desire of his heart is for obedience, is for the the perfect law, the law of liberty where there is life and blessing and joy. Church, don't be deceived. Let us be doers of the word with joyful expectation of the blessing of the Lord now and into eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, help us. God, help us to see the glory and the beauty of your great salvation, to understand the wonder of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, not by any works that we could ever do. God, we are so helpless and in desperate need of your grace. And yet, God, that that faith would produce evidence in us, would transform us, transform our hearts. That we would no longer be lovers of sin, burdened by the law of God, but lovers of you and your law and burdened by the the hatred of sin that continues to plague us. That we might walk in your way, seeking your blessing for joy because of your glory and your love. God, captivate our hearts again. Help us to see the beauty of obedience and to run hard after it for your glory.